Ladies and gentlemen, this is a Friday in May. I don't know the date. Michael Martin, do you know today's date? It's the 19th. It says it right here on my computer. Oh, <laughs> is there a... <laughs> There's a little thing at the bottom of the screen. It's great. I just kind of revealed like a lot about my personality. My father was... Um... Oh, and uh, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. What Michael and I are doing today is we're celebrating... We'll talk about why the exact anniversary is a little bit elusive in some ways and a little bit we're going to do our first anniversary episode we haven't prepared too much but just kind of regrouping and doing a stock taking but the fact that uh michael had to tell me that the dates on the bottom of my computer you know people over the course of the years michael might have gotten to know our personalities pretty good and um my i'm born of german stock and irish stock my dad was german my mom was irish and my German dad just did not understand me. And I remember one time um, my mom would come home with the groceries and uh, maybe the gospel passage is about those who said they'd do it and wouldn't do it. And those who said they wouldn't and did. I was pretty good. She'd say, we got to get the uh, groceries out of the car. And I'd, I'd get up. Uh, we'd be watching my brother and I, the wide world of sports on afternoon on Saturday. But, um, you know, now they call it ADD. I've never been diagnosed, but I've always been kind of spastic like that. And so my, uh, I would be just quick to grab the groceries, start putting them away. But my dad would find that I put the gallon of milk in like the pantry. And um, he, would, he would be <laughs> one of those guys, he would watch me from a distance and notice all these things I did because I had no attention to detail. And then one time, I think he reached his limit with it. And he wasn't mad. He didn't have an anger problem. But he said, my middle name is Joseph. And he used to call me Mike Jody. And one time he looked at me and he said, Mike Jody, please do something, one thing deliberately. And I had no idea what deliberately really meant, but I was probably like 12 and I felt uh -huh. cut to the core and he wasn't even yelling at me. Uh, but that's a little bit about my personality as a youngster. And yeah, I'm not very aware of my surroundings. Uh, my office is one of my offices, something of a mess, but not totally a mess. There's an organized chaos. I'm one of those people who can find those papers he needs, even though there's kind of stacks of papers on his desk. Uh, is that your office, Michael? Um, we'll, we'll let the people decide. What kinds of... Actually, it's, right now, there's all these coats on the floor because there's a closet in my room where we keep the winter coats, but my wife just took them out of the kitchen. We had them on a coat rack and just threw them on the floor in here. I think right. she needs to hang them up what later. Are, what are the books under your phone there? I don't know. Christ of the cow. I got a pen with those. Okay. Very right. cool. There you hey. What am I seeing there? Meditations of the Tarot, the classic, right? <laughs> I don't know if mine is. The Libra Usualis. Which is, okay. But uh yeah, my it's a mess. But yeah. but it's I mean what happened? So this is now. I'm not in the in the middle of a writing project right now. So when I'm in the middle of a writing project, it's like disaster in here. Yeah, because I have books all over the place, and I got my system, but which doesn't make any sense to anybody. You're but always usually after I finish up. a project, okay. I clean it up. Yeah, <laughs> but then I imagine your mind starts kind of dialing in on, and I think this is relevant to today's show, the anniversary show, and things because it's it's not a vehicle. It's 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 for itself, you know, the regeneration. But you, you've got your fingers in lots of pots. I have mine and various others. You're usually I've known you for many years. You're usually cooking your next book within a month or two of the completion of the last book. I think you're working on enclosure right now. Not yet. 
I'm, okay. I'm gearing up for that one. I'm trying to finish this book of poetry, which is uh, my first love. Um, so I'm trying to finish that, which I'm, I'll probably be done by the end of the summer. And then I'm going to work on that book, whether it's on enclosure or I want to do something on the land and the, and the, the celebration of the, and not just the celebration of the festivals, maybe have a chapter on that. Let's talk about the land a little bit. Stay on that because I've got I've been reading about the land this week. Why do you want to write on the land? Um, because it's what I do. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, not writing. I mean, the land. I mean, so uh, in our relation, and that's what I why I had a a Substack recently on the Druid Stairs back. Uh, what did I call it? Uh, the the enclosure end game. Yeah. Right? I but so enclosure is really interesting to me like that because it's it's about land use and land use in the, you know, and the corporatocracy or the, the whatever it happens to be at the time in the 15th century 16th century it was uh it was the government you know yeah. this England in particular uh in Russia they did the same thing in Russia at the revolution right yep. collectivization of everything like part of original sin that we just do this right we we well, want to wall things people, off well this is how people this is how power works right yep so power work and we saw this at the beginning of covid where the the powerful became more powerful and, and i include corporations in there 100 the smaller businesses i mean how many small businesses went on went went extinct at that time everything like yeah. on our main street now all you have is uh you know, what's left? No more really kind of unique small businesses. They're all service things. You have coffee shops, vape places, tattoo vape parlors, place. right? And that's every Main Street in America now. Because yeah. uh, those ones that were in the advent of Amazon.com, uh, the small little quaint boutiques and so forth, they were always running kind of, kind of a precarious existence since Advent or uh, Amazon. Mm -hmm. And so it, it didn't take much to push those all, all out so quickly, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I was really sad. Like this, the place I used to buy guitar strings here in in Chelsea, Michigan, which isn't too far. I've been there to Chelsea. So many small businesses that folded in COVID, which uh -huh. is sad, sad, sad to see. Because I mean, some of them survived surprisingly. Yeah. Um, but a lot, so many of them folded. But the, but that's to me that's enclosure as well, right? Because that's Absolutely. what enclosure did. Enclosure threw people off the land and said, "Okay, you can't do this anymore. Figure it out." And so what ended up is in in a early modern enclosure, they people ended up having by by out of desperation to move to cities and be basically made wage slaves, literally wage slaves, in the industrial revolution. And that's what they're trying to do right now, I think, with uh, this proposed. I and people are and not in this country, but certainly in England, it's insane where they're proposing these fifteen-minute cities, right? Right. That's enclosure. That's enclosure. Oh, right? Totally. That's taking the commons away from the common people, right? And the commons in that case being the roads or the ability to travel. Right. What do you think about we've I don't think we've talked about like current current events too much. But yesterday, um, you know, in the parish I run, and I'm taking a new job at the diocese running pastoral services. But in the parish I run, there's a migrant center for Mexican, mostly dairy workers and so forth. But the immigration thing that's going on in the border, that's partly the result of enclosure, right? I mean, we have we have a prefabricated script. You know, one would be the more liberal temperament doesn't see any any notion of uh, 
borders. But then the conservative temperament, I think, too narrowly sees like a wall. So at, at the very most base level, you can see like a door with walls. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, we seem we, we have a problem, which is all of these people at our border. But nobody, I don't think left or right are talking about how huge agribusiness entities, mostly based in America, these old stories, and you might know more than me, but I'm almost going back to my college days. You know, I never went to class, but you'd get these stories that like, um, you know, the big companies would pay these Mexican farmers to, to not produce blue corn, you know, but to use these Monsanto seeds or whatever seeds. And then, you know, it exploits the lands and there's no follow-up. And then these people can't make any money. You know, they get wet into agribusiness. Then they're, they're uprooted from their land and they show up at our borders, right? You know, and if we can't at least see this crisis, um, nobody talks about, you know, so all we hear is about crime, say in El Salvador, there's thugs. Or in Honduras, there's thugs. And I don't claim to have this all figured out. And I hope nobody hears me as lecturing. But there's this other picture, too, that like the enclosure and the uprooting of people uh, when agribusiness goes in. And it's uh, what Wendell Berry would call, you know, the boomers versus uh, the, the, the stickers. The boomers go in and exploit something like coal, or coal mountaintop mm-hmm. removal for coal. They go in and then they leave a community bereft. You know, that was equated once famously at Front Porch Republic, maybe by... Patrick Deneen, but it could be somebody else. So I don't want to steal that. But the it was a combination between uh, a coal coal removal, mountaintop removal of coal, and the SAT. You know, the SAT comes into a town, gives this test that uh, really is a test for paranoia, right? You know, this is connected. That Father Ed who we had on uh, talking about monasticism here at Geneseo for a while, they had they were so proud that they had the highest SAT scores, like in the state. And uh, Father Ed, who's a free man and a truly liberal thinker, he had worked in the prisons and he said the SAT test for paranoia, that if you talk to sane people and if you said like this corkscrew is to that lamp over there as a book is to something else, they'd say like, man, that's a crazy question. And um, <laughs> talking <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the SAT comes into a town, a small town like Livonia, New York, where I live. It takes these people who have one form of intelligence that can probably work for the technocracy and they take them out, you know, never to return. And then they leave a wasteland. And similarly, what uh, the, the coal companies do is they come in, you know, extract the coal from the mountain. You have all this water running down and so forth. And I think that combination or that comparison was accurate. But again, in, in some of these countries, we've done that. Our, our big businesses have come in and been very extractive and lead a wasteland. And we yeah. shouldn't be surprised that these people show up at our borders. Well, and it's not only that resources like that that they, they extract, and I, but I think uh, they extract intellectual resources. Absolutely, right? that's the SAT. And, right? and this is the one thing that bothers me about academia, I mean, which no one ever talks about, right? Because academia, the, the resources get extracted, you know, so the, and then they're taken out of their environment, right? So they, you can't get a job where you went to school or where you, where you're from. Yep. So you end up like my son, for instance, Dr. Thomas Martin is uh, in Colorado, right? Yep. That's where you, you get a postdoc or you get a, get a, get a job um, doing what he loves to do. But, and that's kind of a, that's destructive of community. I mean, not just not blaming you, son, but uh, but that's part of the kind of middle class cultural assumption that permeates our society. That's fucked up. Yeah, that we think that's normal. Just like it's we, embedded we, in our we, language. We right? We could look at your that, son. Go ahead. Yeah. We were taught to think that both parents working 
and putting kids in daycare was normal. All the things we were taught to be that were normal, they're abnormal. Yeah. They're destructive. Saying it's embedded in our language. Somebody could look at your son and say he was destined to go far. And that's always a compliment, right? Mm-hmm. You know, well, he's yeah, going to go far. Talented. How about, yeah. And, you know, here at uh, Geneseo, they closed some years ago, they closed the Department of Speech Pathology. And, and nobody going to school today, like the college students, again, they don't know that um, 60s radicalism, you know, always at the university, what was called as progressivism, the first thing it was questioning is the relationship between like the college and the nation state, right? Now we have our students protesting like these different things, but nobody's questioning that nexus anymore. And the other one we've, I've noticed about the university since I've been here is that um, Geneseo used to be proud of the services it rendered to the local community. It had a speech pathology department because it was training people that could help the local kids with speech disorders. And now they mm-hmm. closed that. And then they're really proud of the college union that shows they have, you know, students from, you know, uh, 164 member countries or something. And from this far. So the, even the whole idea that you could have a local college that would take its needs from the local community and piece people who can improve, produce people who could improve the local economy is just gone. It's a million miles away. It is. Well, and that's, and that's the thing is, you know, um, we, we accept this bullshit. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? But it's like toads. It's like frogs like boiled in water slowly, right? We don't question. But don't you think uh, yeah. you could look at some young people? They could. They would never know nowadays that it was any other way. Is that right? Well, that they, they think that's normal. They think you know, yeah. even you now going to college, people in certain demographics. People think that's you're supposed to do that, and and I've I've been teaching in college for a long time. <clears throat> Guess what? A lot of people in college shouldn't be in college, one hundred percent, because they don't really want to be there. You know, they 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 think they're supposed to go there to get a job, or actually, what happens more often now, and this is uh, colleges, especially liberal arts colleges, that are under threat of closing because of demographic winter. What they do is, um. They add sports teams and give out bogus scholarships, right? So they have an inflated price, which is not really the price, but they say, we'll give you a scholarship. They'll take some of that away. So so kids go there and they're going to extend their, their high school sports career a couple more years, right? Uh, like if you're in a division three school, very, you know, very few of those kids playing hockey or whatever they're playing there are going to go to the to, to the majors, right? Not going to yeah. happen. And <laughs> I think, you know, those, those Division three sports, they also have another downside is that if there was, I don't think uh, this whole word that college or the thing used against homeschooling, you know, a college helps socialization and homeschooling hurts socialization, all that's so crazy. But on the other hand, you know, working in campus ministry, two things about campus ministry. One is the... Um, uh, I'm thinking, well, it, it's both genders, but the parents whose emotional lives were depending on their kids' sports activities. So let's just use the sport of soccer. You know, all of a sudden they come to Geneseo and they're playing division three soccer and it gives the mom or dad a reason to keep, so, you know, that uh, one form of helicopter parenting to mm-hmm. keep themselves like their whole, instead of the dad leaving the job that makes him miserable, you know, and kind of growing a pair and doing something and staking out and, fi- and continuing his or her own growth, they get their emotional needs 
from their kids' success at sports and division three sports kind of leads to that. And so it right. leads to where, you know, there's always a case where the young kids have to break away in some way from the kind of the grip of their parents, but these emotional bonds through sports, I'm seeing um, that it kind of prolongs this. It really hurts it. And the campus ministry role we've mentioned, Ivan Illich so often in this show. And by the way, if we didn't make it clear, we're kind of celebrating what Michael and I believe to be a one-year anniversary of the Red Regeneration podcast. But this uh, Ivan Illich, he had a less read essay in a book called Church Change and Development. And I forget the title, but I think it was on the role of the campus minister. And I, I was graced to read it early in my ministry is that he saw the campus minister. You're Michael Martin. You've left home. And people said, you're going to go far. You're at a four-year university. And all of a sudden, you know, you're realizing, wow, my muscles are kind of feeling antsy. I should probably be using them. Uh, I, I think some of my professors are dumb as a box of rocks, but I'm not sure. I mean, they all have PhDs. And then you come and talk to the campus minister. And Illich portrayed the role of the campus minister as that kind of person who creates a bubble for you to question that a little bit and ever so gently force you back into that thing, right? And so my role for 25 years has just been to say, especially with freshmen, like, leave, leave. You know, you're getting into a lot of debt for this if you're not sure. Exactly. I said the same thing and I'm bad for business. Oh, hold on a second. Talk to me. Uh, He didn't mean it. He didn't mean it. It was a metaphor. (laughs) That was the DEI director. You you said uh, both genders earlier. Uh, oh, that's um, right. Thank you. Thank it's you. A metaphor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we yeah. got you. We got you. Too funny. Too funny. So the um, one year into the regeneration podcast, what have been uh, what's been some of the joys you found in it, Michael? You know, it was kind of on a whim. We tell the story. Like you got a you're. I would see you're the big. You're somebody, and you inspired me. You're a doer. So during COVID, we had we'd had a kind of a thing where we gathered some friends, Tara and Guido and our friend Thomas Jude Germanario. Yeah. We had recorded a couple of things called the Head School because we just wanted to start figuring out what we were doing. And that had some pros and cons. And then a few weeks later, um, that was purely something we videotaped and we might just post occasionally. And then a few weeks later, I just started, I'd lost my job at the Abbey yeah. due to COVID. And I knew I had some time. So I wrote to you and just said, um, let's try a podcast, right? And I'm a joiner inner. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, I, it was never, never anything I thought about doing. I mean, people had mentioned doing the podcast. I'm like, I can't, I can't think about this right now, you know, especially running a farm yeah. and working however many jobs besides that, you know, the gig economy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been, I mean, it's been, for me, it's been wonderful. I'm just thinking, you know, we're talking about highlights and stuff. I, mean, I think after every show, I go away. I was like, well, that was probably the best show we've ever done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I say it the next week, right? You yeah. Know? And it's interesting. And I, and I like that. Uh, what I didn't, what I don't, and this is probably not good uh, as far as the brand goes. I despise the you know the idea of having a brand, but um, I didn't want to be like those kind of channels that just do th- theology and fil- and religious philosophy all the time. You know what I mean? Because it just gets dull, and I, you know, how many times can you say the same thing? So I think what I've enjoyed, you know, appreciated what we what we've done is. Bring in st- stuff that's, I mean, of course, 
I'm a <laughs> we're grounded in philosophy and theology, trust me. But uh, to bring in things from and, and guests from other disciplines and from other uh, spheres, like when we like a few weeks ago when we we interviewed I Draw Slow, the Irish folk band. That was that was wonderful because it was it was it was not our usual thing and and of course we see what else we, we when we talk I love even though it was it was still kind of in our wheelhouse of theology I mean the interview we did just last week with Allison Milbank was refreshing and the thing is you know I don't and this is probably like I said I'm not good on the, at this staying on brand and turning myself into a product thing but kind of the rule of thumb for me is you know and this is this goes back to my experience as a Waldorf teacher one of the things I used to always tell the student when I was in teacher training I would say you know if you're not excited about it no one else is going to be excited a hundred percent right so if you go in to teach something that you're not enthusiastic about forget it it's going to fall flat um and so i mean i think what i what i've derived in a way is that kind of enthusiasm the word which means to be filled with the god right where you be, which means to be in the moment is what it really means right yeah. to be alive to what's right there at the moment and that's you see that in teaching where people try to teach from the manual right teach according to the to the rubric and they're always dead teachers, right? <laughs> you know, but that that's most of teaching nowadays, right? Where's the rubric? And students ask me in college, Professor Martin, you don't have a rubric. And I'm like, yes, I know. Well, what about the same what, critique? What, all should, the time. what should I do? What should I do in this paper? Right. Astonish me. That's what you should mm -hmm. do. Astonish me. Yeah. It's funny that like you're probably torn. I haven't taught as much as you. I've taught humanities and, and a kind of a freshman writing seminar. I, where I used the works of Wendell Berry. And I chose, I used to choose the works of Wendell Berry just because uh, I think one of the, and maybe this is something I like about the podcast too, that um, one of the biggest ideological strangleholds we have is this, um, these new religions of the left and the right, you know? Um, in fact, yesterday, kind of a segue, I was thinking that, you know, when somebody says everything's bad about something, all I know how to do is to look at it. So in, in, in Catholic circles, um, the punchline of every joke is like 70s Catholicism. And the punchline of the punchline is always clown masses. And lately, again, because I'm seeing that like kind of just a liturgical piety, uh, a refrain I've made so often on the show is how the few remaining young people in church are probably you know, a huge percentage are suffering with scrupulosity and obsessive compulsive disorder. And on the other side, you have kind of faceless service, you know, like I'm going to be on a phone bank for climate change. And then and then you have people are coming in church, but that's all they see. So regeneration for me is getting that out there. But I, I, I wondered, it just occurred to me this morning that this much maligned 70s Catholicism, and there is a certain amount to make fun of, but again, it had a focus on healing. Just healing was a big thing, right? And now we just have like moral codes. But the other one was, was the church so politically divided? If you look at the Catholic church today, there's only one theme, the Catholic right versus the Catholic left. And I wonder if, you know, I was, I grew up in 70s Catholicism and I can laugh at some of it. Some of the songs were insipid, but I can't oh, yeah. deny that I kind of liked them um, as a young kid. But uh, did that, was that just right before this huge to completely new religious tribalism? So here we know our friend Guido Preparata, he I was 
might have joined us today. He and I have to talk about some other things. His book, The Ideology of Tyranny, and he's not alone doing this, is that the whole divide and conquer thing of like wokeism versus you know, conservatism is a game played by the elites. You know, he Absolutely. can make that case conclusively. And I wonder if in the church too, that um, when we look at the left and right, is there some way that like 70s Catholicism is the butt of every joke is so denigrated because it was just prior to the fact that we we're all totally separated into the ideological Catholic right. You, you're a little <laughs> bit older than me, not to slam you, but do you remember, like, what's your memory of those times? This is a stupid segue, but I've just been thinking about it today. Well, I was an altar yeah. boy. Not even a segue. It's just a, a, a detour. Sorry. For a good portion of the 1970s, I was an altar boy mm-hmm. in a Novus Ordo church. Um, but that was still, I mean, this 1970s when I was in grade school, that was still the end of that kind of golden period of Catholic education in the United States where, you know, I mean, there were so many Catholic schools in the Archdiocese of Detroit where I grew up. I mean, 300, I think I heard. Uh, I, and actually one of the members of our CSA works for the, the education wing of the, of the Archdiocese. And she said, it's down to like five. Wow maybe 10 i mean from when it was when i was a kid and there and that part of that was you know the baby boom right there were so many kids uh and which was able to at least uh sustain the you know to, to still be traveling on the momentum of the like the, when my mom and dad were kids in catholic schools in the 1940s and 50s um so that still was had kind of uh, had the the proper amount of inertia to keep going <laughs> Mm-hmm. But, but I think what happened with the seventy with the seventy seventies uh, the Vatican II liturgical changes, which got uglier as as time went on. I mean, I never I don't think I've ever seen a clown mass, but I you know I was in a, in a I have an urban setting, but I saw some some bizarre stuff. I mean, don't even get me going about liturgical dance, which could be so beautiful. It could we'll be ask, beautiful. We'll ask the Coptic church, right? But it's not. It li- just looks dumb. Uh, but what I think happened is because of that incredible flatness that is often the Novus Ordo liturgy, I often call an infomercial for Jesus because it, you know what I mean? It just, it's inartistic. It's inartistic. And if you go, and one of the, the first moment to a Byzantine liturgy, I was blown away by how beautiful it was, right? And I think that people are attracted to uh, the traditional Latin mass for the same reason. Well, for one of the same reasons. They want something beautiful and nourishing to the soul, you know? And they don't want, um, here's an example. So last, last Friday, um, my three of my kids are homeschooled one's going to graduate this year and uh my there was like this end of the year homeschool roundup deal where they had little performances and stuff and it's held at a protestant church you know 10 miles away so i went there and i'd never been there and i walked into the it's called the auditorium which is where they hold their services it was the ugliest damn thing but you know it is i mean it's there's nothing artistic about it nothing beautiful about it it's just totally it's just a functional thing and i think to to a great degree that that wasn't totalizing in the vatican II reforms but it was certainly part of it 
is to you know is and that was part of the 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 gamble on behalf of of those those who were revising the liturgy to make it more palatable to Protestants. That was part you know, of it to flatten it, right? And so it, you know, and as Peter Morin said, everybody's church is nobody's church, right? Mm -hmm. And Dorothy Day, you can't get any more radical than Dorothy Day and Peter Morin, and she was a daily communicant in the Latin Mass, right? Right. right? So it's not necessarily something for for neocons. What do you think but, about what do you think about like my when we had Paul Kingsnorth on, for example? You know, we both, I think, when all of a sudden we found that kind of conversion, that like this kind of he saw so much and still sees so much. And I really, really, really admire him and his courage and everything. But there was a part of our podcast where um, you know, he was saying that you know, he, he started seeing through the environmental movement, the idea of like doing concrete things versus just supporting some huge agenda called climate change. And then he finds himself in front of an iconostasis, you know, that a, a big part of me, and we haven't talked about this in detail. You know, I once wrote an article for your journal about Orpheus and crowds versus uh, community and so forth. But you've probably kind of heard my shtick that like when after the Edict of Milan, when everybody was nominally Catholic, the church had to get into crowd control stuff, right? And uh, whether it's, whenever we want crowd control, we throw up a proscenium arch of some sort, whether it's an altar rail and iconostasis. And so we call that beautiful. The other day I was reading about St. Francis de Sales when he was being elevated to the episcopacy, he wrote in his journal that he was going, now, the liturgy at that time, in one sense, was beautiful in Paris, but all he could re realize if he was going to be spending more time in divine liturgy is he was going to be saying his rosary beads more. You know, there's no participation. So, and I'm not trying to do a slam dunk, but this kind of like, it's beautiful. You know, and when we talk about Larry Chaff and the Anglican ordinariate, that early mass, and I, and I totally agree with you on this kind of Protestant thing, and I'm not trying to slam Protestantism, but if we just symbolically for a moment say that obviously you know, the critique of the Latin mass is like what came before it. But if we symbolically came from something like a circle, you know, we all have, when I talk about OCD relentlessly, almost like somebody who suffers from OCD, like I, I can't let it go. Um, we could look at Jesus, you know, he knew that um, Chesterton said, we need a little gold in our life, you know, like a birthday. One day a year we celebrate. We, but we, Jesus is very aware of the tendency to make all of this world kind of neurotically religious religious so he offered a simple blessing over bread and wine and a prayer of thanksgiving mm -hmm. and um i think that was almost to like neutralize the human tendency to get really weird about this stuff anyhow you know that when and i understand it so the edict of milan comes and shortly thereafter we start seeing these big kind of churches and the people who wanted to so some of it was pacifying the crowds but showing a table on the the auditorium stage the the altar. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the monks go out to the desert, those people who really wanted to live the evangelical virtues. But now that we're kind of, there's very few Christians or Catholics around. I'm not saying we just need to go to church house masses or church uh, house churches like yours. I have no idea. But I think we've been in a, what's called a watershed movement. So I have this kind of allergic reaction, even when you talk about the Byzantine liturgy, it is beautiful, but are we called it's, and it's not passive. But engage with me on this, you know, because I don't know where I'm going. Why well, I, I know I know what I'm talking about. I don't know where the Lord is leading us. And it's not just to say we have to gather and just do hippie things, but well, something like a simple blessing and people gathered and faces and names in this anonymous world is super important to me right now. Well, I don't think there's one, you know, there's not a formula. Um, Agreed. And I but I think, you know, 
in my, in my diagnosis. Um, I think that's what draws people to the Latin mass and the liturgy or in the divine liturgy, because mm -hmm. they're missing something. They want to have, people want an experience of something sacred, right? And if they don't get, if you're not getting that in your usual church setting, and the thing, the thing is, we can also convince ourselves we're getting it when we're not getting it. Right? Great. I think that's a huge, huge, huge part now. Yeah. People, that, oh, the most holy, that's when we're adding all these words to the Eucharist, right? I've been playing with Eucharist lately. So, you know, my joke has been, I've never met a presence that wasn't real. So what does the word real presence mean? So then I think we should call it the real, real, real presence. On the other hand, lately, I've been playing around with the words. You can get pretty far if you say the present real, kind of like that, or a real absence also says something really poetic. But I think a lot of what's going on, and I almost want to go back to our discussion about the land and the underworld, is this thing. We know there's something there, but we're a lot of what we're doing now is pointing to something that might just be like thou doth protest too much or something. Yeah, well, I, I think the, I mean, I hate, I mean, it's hard to, to get the big picture when you're inside it. Um, but well, I, I, well, I don't know how, but even those, um, you could, you know, it's almost like, the, you know, I'm really interested in the Gothic movement of the 19th century, the Neo-Gothics, where the, a lot of beautiful churches were built, were sure, built sure. in America at that time. But that's also when the pre-Raphaelites and William Morris were, were active, right? And they were... And especially William Morris. In fact, there's a great essay in, in the next uh, Jesus Imagination on William Morris on the household of things um, by, uh, by, by Catherine Kuyper, who teaches at uh, Hillsdale College, not too far from okay. here. Um, uh, the, what, what Morris is doing in Rudolf Steiner too, they're trying to, to see how the things in our lives, the common everyday things, like the doorway and the wallpaper and the chairs can be human scaled in that, and have personality rather than this kind of mass produced thing that we're, we're, we're going into. I don't know about you, but when I go by and see these subdivisions go up in different places <laughs> and you see, all, I mean, it's just, it's all formula, right? It's all formula. Whereas my house, you know, built in, at least part of it was built in the 1880s or 18, even earlier. I think what happened was a log cabin before they built the house. Um, it's just so weird. Every nothing fits together. You know, it's it doors. Every door is different and unique. Uh, there's wainscoting and every room is different. The floors are made from different species of wood that were lumbered here. Um when it has more personality, we all have had that experience where you go into a, a, a dwelling, right? A dwelling, isn't that what Heidegger says? How can we dwell? And, and, and one of the things Steiner and Morris both were pointing to is, you know, what did we lose with mass production, oh. right? We, we lost the sense of the human, right? Housing you know, is a we're verb consumers, versus like we're not, buying a house. Pardon me? Housing is a verb as opposing to buying a house, right? Yeah. You know, housing yourself was a it was an activity we did. Now you buy a house. All these things you know. we're into dwell, and and I think what I think going back to what we we're talking about with with liturgy and stuff like this, whether it's house church, I mean, because the thing is, you can turn anything into an idol, 
house church can be turned into an idol the latin also. mass is turned into an idol the, the divine liturgy is turned into an idol and people think you couldn't it's holy it can't be it's an idol trust me the eucharist can be turned into an idol right you know and and i think jean-luc marion he's perfect uh, analogy that he gives of a of a an icon and it doesn't doesn't have to i'm not talking you know a picture of mary and jesus an icon is that which allows us to cross over into the transcendent and the transcendent to become in, imminent right. whereas um, and sometimes that same thing we're looking at so when the eucharist can be an icon so it can do that to us but it all, also can be a mirror that when we look at it we don't see the Eucharist, really. We really see our own desires reflected back to us or our, our self-perception. I'm holy now. I'm in the right church or whatever it happens to be, right? So how to, I mean, that talk about the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. I mean, that's a, a, the real task before us is how yeah. to not fall into idolatry. And ideology is a form of idolatry. So we start off with the Catholic left and the Catholic right, right? Those are that's idolatry it's absolutely idolatry Mystery can be an idolatry right that's the big one for me like the word mystery and sometimes the word reverence are they become idols even though they're desperately trying to point to something beyond them they've just become a buzzword that like um it can be a buzzword for something i don't like it has no mystery something mm -hmm. that bores me you know and when somebody is using the word mystery it's, it often seems not mysterious to them because it's so controlled. Like they feel like they know it and they've owned the right thing. So I said, well, the way you're, you, the way you just use mystery in that language just means that like, you're so comfortable with it. It's the opposite of a mystery. You know, that the, you know, we need the saints. We both agree. You know, one thing is the, what could bring divine liturgy back. And Paul Kingsnorth would agree with us is then you and I are about this. It's maybe one of our main themes is if what goes on in the church building has to connect to nature and the seasons or else it's nothing. It has to connect or it's nothing. And the other one would be um, those people who say that like um, when the Celtic spirituality, you know, thin spaces, or we're going to have people who just point out to us with conviction and they'll speak with authority, um, which is the opposite of power. And they'll say the kingdom is warm over here, you know, um, and, uh, you know, when I mentioned John Cowper Powis and so forth, he always thought, and this is true of Illich too. He was obsessed with an image of, um, you know, a weed growing through concrete. And he goes, is this violence or not? You know, imagine a weed pushing up through concrete and the concrete breaks. And Illich said, is this violence? I've always found that very compelling, but Powis himself would walk around all the streets of America and, um, he was on a lecture circuit and he would just, wherever the intersection of like, a permanent thing like a stone and living things wrapped around it. He could throw himself in that. And he, he created a gesture in his late books. That's why I found him so fascinating. Instead of us passively receiving, he came up with a gesture that, you know, when we see these things, we can kind of project ourselves a little way out and kind of embrace those elements. And, um, you know, I haven't ruled out that like learning those types of gestures, we could do a whole show on it sometime might not be one of the, you know, without that type of spiritual gesturing, that the mass has passive type thing, which it is for so many people, is just dead. You know, but um, these are things we both, the first thing we hear, the listeners will hear both of us saying is we don't have this figured out. But these are some of the most important questions, I think, you know, mm -hmm. certainly a huge part of the podcast. Well, it's interesting. I mean, 
even with, I mean, we talk about participation or non-participation in the mass. Um, in medieval literature, especially in Arthurian literature, there's a, a phrase that often comes up where I went to hear, in the, and they went to hear him hear mass. To hear it, not, I mean, so they weren't, it wasn't the kind of congregational participation that we do now, right? No, that's what St. Francis of Sales. It was just, it was a venue in which you, the elevation was the big deal. Yeah. And um, he could say his rosary beads more. Yeah. You know, and so now we talk about the real world presence. They've made the reception of the Eucharist, but I've been in employed Catholic church circles for so long that it's so often, you know, it feels like jargon the way people use it. You know, we have to have the Eucharist, the Eucharist, the Eucharist. The game show. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. It can just be that. Yeah, I was actually, I was thinking about this too. This, I think this is related to this idea of going to hear mass. Um, Belloc used that term in the path to Rome. He said he was going to hear mass every day. And what I love about it is he missed it his second day. <laughs> he, goes, <laughs> he made a vow to hear yeah, mass. Yeah, it's, it's my kind of vow. Yeah. But, uh, but also like St. Teresa of Avila, for instance, when she's sharing her her experiences of, of mystical experiences of Christ, she never says, and, and it took about two minutes. Or she said it took, it, it took about the... the uh, the length of an of, of an ave or the length of an of paternoster or the length of a, of a creed she's measuring everything according to that which we also knew yesterday was the the feast of the ascension right, right. and th this idea of measuring uh measuring time not according to the clock but according to 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 a, a sense of the sacred or, but but a sense of the sacred that is also participating in time, but not the tyranny of the of the of punching the clock, right? <laughs> Which is a kind of a tyranny. Yeah. How about uh, you? When you mentioned the land, I want to kind of circle back to that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Is um, I uh, this notion? You know, I so one one thing we want to do, and people please hear us here, is that uh, I mentioned at the end of last week's podcast. And that Alison Milbank one was wonderful. Um, but if uh, one, one purpose of this anniversary uh, episode, as it were, is to invite anybody using the comments on the YouTube, um, or if you're listening to Podbean or podcast, I think we'll see them too, um, but, or, or listen and then come to the YouTube channel, the Regeneration um, YouTube channel, and uh, leave us a comment. But things you'd like to hear, subjects that maybe we haven't talked about, uh, maybe even guests. Boy, we've had, I think, both of the ones you sent me in the last couple of weeks. You know, we get a lot of letters and uh, I won't name names now, but Michael, you know, you received a letter from a biblical scholar who was kind of promoting herself, but I thought it was pretty interesting. I know we have to do a show on Margaret Barker, first of all. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one was, uh, it was a Catholic psychologist, and maybe he's listening now. And maybe I'm just kind of forcing the hand that we got to invite this guy on. He was saying that he just thought like what we were doing on the show was so relevant to his practice because we're talking about what it means to be human. So that kind of reframes what healing would look like in a psychotherapeutic context. Right. So these were two, I thought, interesting. And also, let, yeah. let me add, Mike, that he all, yeah. he suggested we, we have a beer together. Yeah, that seems fun. A virtual beer together. So, yeah. so that's right. We're gonna that'll be a right regeneration podcast 2.0 day <laughs> drinking. Yeah. Day drinking. 
Uh, but the uh, and, and something I want to do, can you think of a scholar? There's a guy, his name is R.J. Stewart. And he's still alive. Oh, but, you know, there's a, this anthropop you and I have talked about. His name is Stephen Clark. He writes on the Mexican mysteries, a right. little known work of Rudolf Steiner. But he's talking about the telluric forces in the American land. And he has this interesting proposition that. Um, so I just at the beginning of the show, I was looking for something I'd sent to myself, a quote from Rilke. And um, let's take the microcosm of our own life. Right. So. I'm going to overgeneralize. The Catholic Church tended to, for 2,000 years, worship like sky gods and so forth. And people are going to hear me always saying, like, 2,000 years after the incarnation, maybe we're called to be something different. But a lot of us realize that, you know, when we say Dostoevsky saw further than many of the church fathers, for sure he did, because he was talking about the inner world of all of us. So the quote from Rilke is, perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. So let's take the microcosm of our own psychology, and let's talk about the whole world exploited by, say, Sigmund Freud and Dostoevsky. We don't think that has been brought, I don't think it's been brought into the Catholic consciousness quite enough. Now, a lot of it is bad. There's pop Freudianism, there's a, could be a young cult as well as the great insights of young. But on the other hand, I think there's a direct analogy. People, young people, if they're listening, Joe Rogan is having these people on who've taken their plant-based medicines and they're seeing these kind of gray creatures. And this guy, Stephen Clark, reading about the Mexican mysteries, he, when I read him well, he's saying that the same thing is going on at the macrocosmic level. We've turned people away from the underworld just by saying it's hell and it's all bad where there's a lot of creatures down there that need to be redeemed, just like those ghosts in us, you know, that I tell students all the time, that thing, that voice in you, that's scaring you so much, it's, mm -hmm. it's could just be something that needs your attention and love. But there's this, it opens up to me that could be the, the charism of American Catholicism for the next 2000 years. I think the impulse could be leading to this continent and under the patronage of Our Lady of Guadalupe, who is much more than Mexico. Right. I, I think she's the patroness. You know, America is dedicated America, to Mary yeah. in her immaculate conception, but she's the patroness <clears throat> of America. What, how do you enter this whole notion of the underworld, which is something I want to explore, but all I know is what I don't know about it. Do you know if, if there's any people? So I'm sharing my interest for a future episode. Well, actually, it's going <laughs> to... Let's plug next week's show. Next week, uh, it will be Martin Shaw and he'll be a great person to talk to him about that. Okay. But actually I've been thinking about this a lot um, because the underworld, what, what is the underworld? Well, in one way you could say it's what, what we're, the things we're unconscious of or we're avoiding, right? But it's also the body. It's the, the deepest part of materiality in a way, right? Where you go yeah, in the body the of the earth. earth, the earth, right, yeah. right. And I'm a guy, you know, I'm a farmer, right? So, I'm interested in that dynamic between the, the solar and the earthly, right? I work with it every day. Um, in fact, um, this weekend we're doing, I'm having a biodynamic farming and gardening workshop here at the farm. And either it depends if it rains tonight, we'll do it tonight. But if it, if it doesn't, if it does, we'll do it tomorrow. We're going to dig up the cow horns. Fun. Yep. Buried last fall. And which is precisely working with those kinds of energies. But I think psychologically, what you're addressing there is, and you're right, the, and I think we, we've seen this through Catholic theology, Orthodox theology, is the, the emphasis, the unspoken preference for celibacy 
or the heavenly or the angelic over the earthly right mm -hmm. and how many times even in catholic and orthodox circles certainly in protestant circles do we hear the, the phrase the earth is not our real home wow right yep bullshit <laughs> you don't have to be too 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 uh mentally acute to read the bible from the cover to cover and figure out that yes it is again if you know you're often quoting it but if people just needed a symbol of that it's like sergius bogakov on the eucharist the blood of christ yeah. that flowed right exactly let's exactly. start paying attention to the earth folks yeah but but i think but, but i think that's interesting i mean I feel all these stories of the of the heroes in mythology who have to go into the underworld right or if you mentioned earlier yeah. right but there are many others and I, and, I, and it and it's coming and it's coming exactly what i think what happens when we go into the underworld we come at least i maybe not totally come to terms but we begin to come to terms with all of those things and sex is one of them right mm -hmm. And by fearing, by not going into that underworld, what happens is those creatures are still there and over overwhelm us. Become our puppet masters, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I, those forces, right? Mm -hmm. Those forces overcome us and overwhelm us. And like you said, that quote from Rilke, right? Maybe it's really a princess. Well, it's Sophia, right? It's Sophia who needs to be released from, from her sleep, right? Sleeping. Beauty the is there, yep. In our interview with David Bentley Hart, whenever it was earlier this year or into last year. Totally relevant. That's in his book, Kanogaya. It's precisely what the, that story is. He, he based that book on the Gnostic Hymn of the Pearl, which is the retrieval. Basically, it's the retrieval of Sophia or the retrieval of our 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 real personhood from, from the darkness and from forgetfulness. Yeah. From forgetfulness, because we forget. What we're, why we're here one of one of the things that you know rudolf steiner he's weird but he can be super super tantalizing people become cultists with them we all know that whole thing but one of the interesting tidbits he dropped in these mexican mysteries about the american land was that and i i think i love this so much so i'll, I'll kind of give the punchline first but that maybe the first two thousand years of american i mean european catholicism mostly based there you have the story of uh the mother and child to the Mater Dolorosa, right? You know, you're, we're moving in that direction. But this brokenness, this brokenness, the underworld, that the American Catholic charism will be from the Mater Dolorosa to healing again, you know, because I can't shut up about the theme of healing, that we, when we go to the underworld, we're going, and that he would even say, this is where it gets more esoteric and occult, is that just like Herod tried to prevent the birth of Christ, there was something happened um, and I'm reading all about you know, Teotihuacan, this Mexican civilization that really sprung out of nowhere, like a mushroom in first century Mexico. And there were precursors to that. So you get a sense that in on the American land somewhere, there was an attempt made, and this is shielded by great mystery for Steiner. There was an attempt made to interfere with the mysteries of Christ's death and that a great initiate tried to stop him, but there were these forces that allowed it to continue. And that in the American land, again, that that healing of coming from death, where we're feeling enslaved to mm -hmm. restoration, that could be the theme for the next 2000 years. And for me, that's very hopeful, right? 2000 mm -hmm. years isn't enough and we can start celebrating that this notion from that underworld to the shadows, the doubles, working with those, um, terra incognita, starting to go there under the patronage of uh, the divine feminine, specifically on this continent, Our Lady of Guadalupe, 
um, you know, I want to explore this a lot next year in what other ways we can, you know, Martin Shaw can help us unpack it. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I don't know, we haven't, I haven't told you about this, but I've been working on this volume of poetry forever. Is this all your poetry or is it an anthology too? Or all no, your it's own mine. Poetry? It's all mine. Very cool. Um, but the t- the working title of the collection is Mythologies. And, and it started off with um, me looking at kind of the, the myths and legends that have kind of informed who I am. So part of it was the, the story of Lancelot and King Arthur is in there. Because, I you know, the older I get, the more and more I realize the Mort d'Artur by Thomas Mallory is the foundational text for who I am. Um, but it started off with that. And, and actually seeing a lot of the things I do here on the farm and through my life in mythological terms or in folkloric terms, right? But it's more and more it's been it's taken a term to or a turn toward what you're talking about with this journey to the underworld, right? And and coming to terms with actually, I think uh, uh, in a way one of the guiding metaphors of this collection is is the Great Pan, right? Because I I'm really fascinated and I, I write about this in a book in Sophie in Exile. I have a chapter on the great, great, underappreciated poet and writer, Eleanor Fargin. Uh, and she she uses Pan. In fact, one of her first books is called Pan Worship. It's a volume of poetry. And, but she, for her, Pan is a metaphor for Christ. And she's in, at the time she was writing this stuff, she wasn't even a Christian yet. And even though she wasn't a Christian, she was she wrote all these wonderful lyrics that ended up on the Anglican hymnal. Like probably most famous, uh, "Morning Is Broken," Morning's broken yeah. which is uh, if you really pay attention to those lyrics, they are extraordinary, extraordinary. Uh, absolutely, lyrics. that was a great article too. <clears throat> and uh, and a great so, chapter uh, of your book. I'm sorry. Well, yeah. well, no. So yeah. So so I I I've noticed more and more as I'm going through this. It's it's a it's, it's probably psychologically helpful for me too, but to come and this is what, what I write in there. I think with with Fargin drawing on that, and I think this is certainly inhabiting my consciousness in this in this uh, in the writing of these poems. Is that uh, the story I tell in there? And I can't remember which Roman it was, but at the at the time of the crucifixion, there was a sailor in the Mediterranean. Who heard a voice come across the sea and it said, "The great Pan is dead." That's uh, that's Rabelais. I'll send you. No, it's not Rabelais. It's, oh, it's no, okay. it was a Latin. It was a okay. Latin classical. Oh, so Latin. he's probably just quoting that, but he he yes. extrapolates on that in his fourth book. I'll send it to you. It's super. Yeah. It's, it's central in all of world literature. You know. Right. Um, but anyway, so the great Pan is dead, and uh, and so I think uh, I think it was Bede or one of the early church historians, can't remember who it was. Um, he was interpreting that as saying that this voice was saying that the Roman God Pan was dead, right? With the crucifixion. But others were interpreting it as, as saying that whoever this voice belonged to or whatever spirit this voice belonged to is that when they witnessed Christ die on the cross, that the, the great that that was the great pan who was dead you know it was it was a horrifying 
to witness the source of life because that's what pan means all right yep you know so it, it was that was it and, and that and it didn't anticipate the, the the resurrection but that was the announcement and i that i i think that's an unexplored territory in christian theology yeah. you know and I and I think part and parcel of that. Say more. Say that it's so crucial. Say that key point again. You know, when you say it's unexplored, it's unexplored. What's unexplored? But well, say well, what's the, that God of the underworld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the the God of the countryside, the God of the peasantry. And it's there. Is, Pan is also pane, it's just bread, but everything. You know. Right, but but it's it, the all, right? The yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. And this is what Saint Paul says: We are all and in all the pleroma. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Christ is all and in all. Right. I mean, that's could it be any more plainly spoken? Not Christ right. is all and in all. And I think. And I mean, I think Pan is a God of fertility, but not but uh, not of sexual license. Right. 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 right? And fecundity. Uh, uh, like, yeah, I mean, fertility yeah. is super important to me. Of course, I have nine children, but. But it's also, I mean, as a farmer, you, nothing is more important than fertility and ensuring fertility and working with nature to ensure that fertility as much as one can. Oh. Right. And I think, and I, and I, I'm, I have said it before, but I'll say it again. I think what we see right now with this, this trans bizarreness and even, did you see this story? This just came out this week that some drug company is developing uh, a vaccine they're calling it that will prevent women from getting pregnant. Wow. No, that's not. It's like treating pregnancy like a disease, treating fertility yeah. as a disease. Right. That's the world in which we live, and I think that, and I think you could say, and I, though it, though it's not explicitly stated, but I think in practice it unfolds this way, is the emphasis through church history on celibacy, and elevating the clergy above above the the lady even though it, everybody's going to tell you that's not how it was meant but it's how it worked out right right right, right. um and i and i think all the stuff we see right now is a, a direct but kind of uh by circuitous means result of that yeah. of that and and that's all also of and then you see this. So you go back through to the Middle Ages when the cult of Mary begun begins, right? In earnest, it that was not something the church hierarchy said. Hey, let's push Mary. Right, right, right. That came from the ground up. That came from the the the, the laity up, right? So those kinds of things. Or and I think we were talking earlier. Or you know, so I think. I don't know how this would happen, but I think the salvation would, would come from the bottom up. I was just going to say that it's there's you mentioned uh, Orpheus. There's this great musical Hades Town. People need to yeah. listen to it again and again. But the um, the church is schizophrenic on this issue, right? You know, I mentioned Patrick Tanine earlier, but some years ago, I don't know, fifteen, he might have had an article in uh, uh, First Things. But I used it when I used to teach humanities that like. Um, one of the hopefully one of the things that the regeneration podcast can do and i think maybe by focusing on the underworld and nature is to help hear this stupid political divide because he showed like you know the republicans would say um 
you can't do anything to mess with the fertility of this body. And don't change this into a male or a female. No way. But if you're conservatives, you can look at that mountain over there and say, yeah, you can turn that into a field and -hmm. you can put all the chemicals you want into that thing. That's no problem. Right. And the liberals would say you can change this male, female, regulate fertility here, but you must protect pristine nature. You wouldn't mess with her at all. Yeah, it's a bizarre thing, right? Yeah, that is a bizarre thing. Right. And it's so illustrative. And it also made me think of. um, you know, the Orthodox, you're a poet and a poet collector, Philip Sherrard, right? His book, The Rape of Man and Nature, that yeah. the church, you know, the official pronouncements of the church probably tend to lean, Pope Francis is trying to address this to his credit, probably tend to lean too much on the awareness of this nature, the body, you know, and don't put chemicals to regulate fertility in here and don't change male to female. We haven't done enough. But the point is we can't do one without the other. We can't do one without the other. And so the church in focusing on this one, they, when you mentioned that, that virus, it struck me, the word that came to me is like a rape, right? Or something, you know, but the rape of man and nature, but we're still allowing the, this kind of technocratic view of nature out there. And, you know, unless the church can bring two of these together, it is speaking um, just gibberish, speaking gibberish. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I, I mean that's, it's I mean it is. It's, it's, I mean, because I, I, I think what we see is, you know, under the guise of environmentalism, it's just another kind of exploitation, right? Right, and and, the, and you can see because, like, as you point out, the, you know, if you look out to nature into the human, then the human nature, that's the other thing they're trying to to colonize, right? Right mm-hmm. now, as we as we speak. Right, and it's it's perverse in, in almost all regards, and and, and people are afraid to say anything about it. Which, which and the people who and the, and I was telling Bonnie this the other day. I said, you know, it's it's easy in this environment, this technocratic environment that you know where we get most of our news from social media to be to despair and like, oh my, there's no hope, <laughs> right? Like watching. What's been come? What's come out about the FBI over the last few weeks? And my God, you know, are we the most corrupt nation on earth in history? Wild, <clears throat> but but I but on the other hand, you know, I, I told Bonnie, I said, no, yeah, you know, there. I think there's still hope because there are people that we could, you know, that, that that's the thing is right now we want to categorize everything as left or right, right? There's but there are people <clears throat> left and right. I mean, this is, I've been kind of excited about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Because I haven't been interested in a Democratic politician for <laughs> a long, since his uncle or since his father. I mean, a long time. Surprise people, because a lot of people are just going to go who we just thought like nothing good could come from Nazareth. A lot of Trump supporters, young they're, they're pretty smart. They're just going to be with him so quick and it's going to upset the political calculus. It doesn't mean he's going to win. But um, the world, the elite, whatever we want to call it, want to think that everybody who is with kind of Donald Trump, very few of him, well, all of them knew he was a stooge, but they also knew that he was a threat in some way. But when when a certain faction of our population sees those young people or whomever just so easily float their support because those same themes are over with Kennedy, better articulate. I hopefully I hope it's going to upset the political calculus. Yeah, of, me too. Uh, and what's good about it, not just him, I mean, but there are other people out there like Naomi Wolf and Jimmy Dore, um, 
people who who you know um glenn greenwald awesome yep. there are people who are you know would have you know i don't know what they would i don't think you could describe them as left or or anything like that but a few years ago they would have described themselves as progressive or lefties right they won't they won't do it now because they're not stupid <laughs> and they're honest with themselves right and i think there's there's hope that that I mean, even though we are not presented with that that picture, and these are the people who were shut down by the social media, by the FBI, basically, through social media over the last couple few years, right? Oh. Uh, Joe Rogan, remember what they did? Remember that bizarre thing with Joe Rogan when he got COVID and took ivermectin and whatever else he took, yeah. and it was like they let the attack dogs out on him. It was like Birmingham in the fifties, you know. It was you know what just, word when funny. you when you mentioned uh, you know both leftism and progressivism the word that our friend Guido uses a lot which might have a future is dissent right you know we can say that's an essay or a book what happened to dissent that when leftism is doesn't have any part of dissent to it in fact the word dissent seems to be the opposite of what constitutes the political quote unquote democratic party of the left yeah. right now that the word that might help organize people with like an RFK presidency and so far listen neither michael or i are calling him a martyr right now but a great writer this charles eisenstein <clears throat> uh definitely a man of dissent he just kind of signed on with the kennedy campaign but it's something to watch for sure i think that's what we're both saying but uh one of the hopes that could crystallize around him is that um people could rally under a notion of dissent again you know which right. are the real progressives the real left but it's also i mean uh, with him in particular but but with even with those figures I mentioned, it's refreshing to hear people not just repeating the master yep. negative. Yep, yep, yep. Right, and not only just not only that, but but to art, I mean, he's really articulate. I mean, Kennedy in particular, but all those people I mentioned are really articulate in a way that I thought was was gone forever. Because yep. you know, when I teach rhetoric, for instance, in college. I'll often show um, I usually often show the the mountaintop speech by Martin Luther King. And I say, well, first of all, all those allusions to the Bible you guys don't get. <laughs> so let me explain what he was talking about with the mountaintop. But the other part of it is that I mean I say, I say where have you heard in pol in political life anybody this articulate? It's embarrassing. Anybody. And Robert Kennedy, if you look at Rob, you know, there was something that came up recently uh, across social media of John Kennedy, some speech he gave. I'm like, Jesus, no, no, no. <laughs> what happened to this level of discourse? Yeah. You know, and we'll they have to have, remember I when mean, one of our head school things, we'll have uh, Tom, our friend Thomas Jude Germanario back on again. Again, we went, he did one on astrology. That was great. And um, he's great on JFK. Let's do one on JFK and the unspeakable, you know. Um, because the unspeakable is a is a theological category. You and I both want to. Well, you know, all of a sudden these things turn against themselves. Go ahead. Well, that was one of the hedge school uh, conversations we had. Somebody mentioned whether the CIA took out Kennedy, right? Oh, like of course they did. <laughs> was that well the at that time though? We didn't want to. We didn't want to publish it on, on on the internet. Now everybody's like, well, yeah. <laughs> okay, right, right, right. You're right. Yeah, that You're was afraid that they were going to come after. It, but no, every, yeah. it's cut. cut damn near common yeah, we, knowledge we were speaking axiomatically as if that was taken for granted yeah back yeah. then back then maybe some uh those will be like the um 15 years from now 
we'll keep on alluding to those head school discussions and people want to pay for them, right? <laughs> like it, was the, it was the early underground tapes of what That's later right. became the Regeneration podcast. You want the vintage stuff? We would give you the yeah. Regeneration. I'll tell you this. Uh, we got to have TJ back too. You know, I had some technological problems. He was on early and he had some drawings, but that guy is a genius. Um, and he's another mind we can tap this year uh, on, oh, the poetry of Dante, uh, on usury, um, on uh, all ancient mythology and new, on the underworld, on the divine feminine. So we'll weave him in again. Uh, he, he's a funny guy. Uh, so, Michael, you know, if we if we are saying, uh, uh, are we going to do this thing for another year? I'm saying, like, raise a glass. We'll, we'll do this thing. We'll continue on I'm as in. long as it's useful. Um, we do ask people to leave their comments. One thing, uh, my youngest came home from college. I looked at our YouTube demographics. You and I, we've never talked about this. We haven't tried to target something. We do talk about a concern we have with you know the world that the young people would be inheriting right now. But we haven't deliberately tried to make ourselves relevant to young people. But I'll mention kind of a disappointment to me is that uh, our demographics are, you know, they're still pretty strongly over 50 and so forth. And I'm gonna I'm gonna work on the theory of my youngest who unsolicited told me, you know, dad these things you're doing are good, but you need to do what uh, anybody else does on YouTube is take some segments, break them down into like uh, two minute key highlight segments. And so that's a courtesy that I hope to offer to some of our listeners is that we have these kind of long form talk, but uh, hopefully in the new year, I told my son, he just came home from college. He won't be living with us for long. I said, uh, do some of that. You seem to have a strong opinion about it. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll let you live. Uh, I'll float you some money. And of course, you're living at home. <laughs> so I give you a solid, right. yeah. Well, and uh, so I want to alert. And again, people use the comments on things you'd like to hear. But we're, you know, we know we're going to take a trip to the underworld. I think we already have, but we'll go deeper on that. And uh, I've had a great uh, time, Michael, so far this year. Here's to year number two with the Regeneration Podcast. Concluding thoughts for you. Uh, yeah. I'm, what are you doing this weekend? Are we going to go into the underworld? Are we going to hell in a handbasket? That's the question. Yeah. We'll fight. We'll but uh, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I mean, this whole year, I mean, we look forward to our discussions every Friday morning. Yeah, and, and thanks. Like, thank all, all the people before, we talk right? to. Yeah, thank who send letters. Yeah, the we haven't done much to promote ourselves. We've actually heard it with my technological mediocrity, and yet yeah. every every week I see that we've gained. And we we don't. We've never even say. Have we once told people like spread the word? It's never come out. No, I gotta, I gotta oh, say one more subscribe. thing. Yeah, do it. Because I don't know. I remember I mentioned to you, um, not on the podcast, but privately, that I was worried that I was too toxic a figure for us to to get our message out on the podcast because. And I just actually got a phone call a week and a half ago from a friend of mine who's uh, about to be ordained as a, an Episcopalian priest or a deacon and then be, then a priest in six months. And he, he talked about a mutual friend of ours who said, you know, Mike, when you, you get on that vaccine stuff, man, it really hits some people in the fields and they don't want to even deal with you anymore. <laughs> And, uh, and and as and the one the one uh, interview we did that was was taken down by YouTube was our interview with Dr. James Thorpe, right? I, I, I talked to him to probably the most personal uh, podcast for me this past yeah. year because it, it affected what my family, uh, what we talked about, um, and then, and so I got one I got to hand it to you, Mike, because 
you know you're uh you're associating with with known felons in a way me and 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 i'm sure i don't know if it's if it's happened but i i gotta wonder if people have questioned your sanity by hanging out with me oh no 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 you have uh uh i love strong personalities <laughs> and we we see we see the world the same way but the uh yeah no, that's it's funny you say that but yeah you're uh you're you're a character i've enjoyed it so much but the um we there's no way change is going to come uh, i think we're both working like i said we've never necessarily even asked for subscribers but like we can ask now like spread the word to your friends if you like what you're hearing tell your friends about the regeneration podcast because i i know for both of us this is a mission we're not saying like urgently we have to save the world but unless people just start kind of sharing what they see as true in that given day and uh if some people think that like we'd be afraid to have somebody on some issue to come on because i always tell people like on some of this uh like i think of our friend guido who's pretty controversial too um somebody could say like what he says about world war ii is crazy i'm like hi come on the podcast we'll have guido on you can talk to him and i feel the same way that if somebody if somebody said like you guys are so cocky on this issue. You wouldn't dare talk to this person. I think you would agree with me, Mike. Uh, send us that person's name. We'd love to have them on the show because uh, neither of us w- care about owning you know, anybody. We're just trying to pursue the truth. And boy, I hope people hear that. I hope they don't hear us trying to like school people who aren't here. And so I do want to say if some people knows of some scholar on some field that has a completely different take, you and I disagree on some things, or I don't know if we disagree so much as we get at things from different angles angles. yeah but uh, i i think i speak for you that i'd I'd say gosh i'd like to have that person on yeah yeah i mean yeah as you know i mean i don't and i I don't know if you notice this about me but i don't like to attack people when we talk to them (laughs) i I just think it's not cool when i watch podcasts when people go after the guests i just think that's the most uncool thing you could do right um um, yeah, but, then, but anybody who came on who differed, we there would be hopefully well, people differ with us. I mean, Paul, yeah, the model I, of civility, the model of we, civility. We, I I differed with Paul Kings North, for instance, on a couple yeah. things, but Me too. it was nothing. It wasn't worth dying for. You know what I mean? The one I think I think he was great. You know, we're just reminiscing a little bit. You know, because we now had the King's coronation, and uh, I really enjoyed that. Mark Vernon, we're going to have him on again. Yeah. But uh, he, he and, and John Milbank, all these people who live in Britain, they just kind of love the monarchy so much. I know. <laughs> I don't get it either. I don't get right. it. I don't get I'm it. over I here going. Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard the I heard the homily at the coronation. Um, Anglican Mass was just stunning. And then, you know, Charles got to pick the readings. We both have something good to say about Charles, um, King Charles, but uh, he got to choose the readings that it was Isaiah, you know, today in your presence, you know, um, it was the, uh, the Jesus reading when he comes into the temple, the right. scroll he presented, and that, so he chose that and that the preaching on that. But then I just want to say to like people like Mark Vernon and John Milbank, like, do you guys realize that the British Empire has heard this thing for like 120 years and they've done the opposite? You know, it seemed to have like with well, the American. You know. Well, and that's why I can't wait for Guido's book to come out. Yeah, right. Church and Empire, because it's a lot about the, the Anglo-American Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And exactly. Yeah. And I and since uh, I wrote. I wrote the forward to that. I don't Maybe it was in the fall. Your forward's great. And then I, you know, I don't even know how to edit my own sentences, but I edited that that little abbreviated book for him, um, as well as he has a, a brief, he's got a, an abbreviated book of Conjuring Hitler coming out, and then uh, a small booklet he wrote on, um, called Phas- Phantasmagoria, 
and it's on the American time in Afghanistan tying to 9-11. And sad but true, you know, if people are wondering what he thinks about Building 7, he doesn't really go there. He's not avoiding it in any way. But he wants to say, like, this whole peculiar saga that had us involved with the Taliban and then just pulling out. And he, he thinks he can connect the dots there for us. Yep. Yeah, he's good at that. He's good. Yeah, at he's that. very good. Yep. So we'll have him on again very soon. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. And again, obviously, some of you are spreading the word because, again, we just see our subscribers. We're our own worst advertisers. They grow. I don't know, Michael, they've grown like 20 people this week. Yeah. You know? And uh, up to our, our best. <laughs> <laughs> people who know me know I'm not lying. I don't know how to show for my best pretending. intentions. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks everybody for listening to the regeneration podcast next week. Looks to be special. Maybe we'll start this dive into the underworld with guest Martin Shaw, a name known to many. So we'll okay. see you then in there. Thanks everybody. Bye.